0: All right, open up your Bible to Genesis 16. We've been in a series called The Story of God. And in this series, we've been looking at the great trajectory of God's plan for the world and God's plan for all of our lives. We've been doing this series uh, because we know that ultimately, at the end of the day, this isn't just some tale from a long time ago. It's not a, a myth. It's not a fairy tale. This is the world's true story. This is the story of who the one God really is, and because it's the world's true story, it's also your story and my story. And you see, if if we don't know the story of God, we'll end up living somebody else's story. We'll end up adopting one of the stories the world tells about itself. And so what we've done is we've entered into the story of God to find our place in the story. We've been talking in particular here for these few weeks about Abraham and this call that God gave him. God called this, this man named Abram, who he renamed Abraham, and his wife Sarai, who he renamed Sarah. And he gives them these magnificent and beautiful promises that through this couple and their kids, God's going to change the whole world. That God's plan, when he looks out on his good world that he made, that you and I as human beings messed up, that through sin and through the idols that we worship that were not God, all of creation was in bondage to sin and bondage to corruption. And God tells this, this elderly couple who are desert wanderers with no land, he tells them that they're going to have descendants that outnumber the stars in the sky, and he's going to give them a land which is the size of a nation, And through them, the whole world is going to be blessed. That God's going to undo the curse of sin, and he's going to bless the nations. That's a big promise, right? Oftentimes, with the promise of God, God makes these promises to us. And then we look around, and we realize we are about a million miles from that promise. And so what you'll see in this story is... Hopefully not just, like I said, a story from a long time ago, but you'll see your story as well with the Lord. So this week I want to talk to you about an incident that happened with Abraham and Sarah and a woman named Hagar. So 16 verse 1 says, Abram's wife, Sarai, this is before their names were changed, had not born any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. Does anybody see the train wreck coming? You know how sometimes we can, we can see other people headed for like a cliff, and yet when it's us in the middle of it, we're like, this is going to be great, right? No issues here. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan ten years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. And when she saw she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Right? She looked down on her. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May Yahweh judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, Here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. Okay, yikes. That's bad, right? This is really bad here. Um, So we could say a couple things right off the bat. Um, If you're like me, you read the Old Testament, and sometimes you're like, I thought these were supposed to be the people that I was supposed to act like. Anybody feel that way? And you read through the Old Testament and you're like, hey, they're as messed up as I am. Maybe worse. Like, this is, this is not right. This is not okay. So, so, so two things here real quick when you interpret the Old Testament or the Bible in general. Uh, the first thing I want you to know here about these great legends of the Bible is that number one, they are not heroes. In fact, if that was the only passage you read, you wouldn't need any more data to go on. That's enough all by itself. They're not people who do everything right. They're not Superman or Wonder Woman. They're not people who have followed God's plan perfectly at all times. The second thing here, along with that, is that at no point in the narrative does the writer of Genesis, who's most likely Moses, at no point does he say, hey, reader, by the way, slavery's bad and don't have multiple spouses. Doesn't say that. Now, we know that from other parts of the Bible, so I'm not advocating, like, pick up another wife. I'm not saying that. Here's the thing. If you read the Bible with this sense that, like, this is just a list of rules for me to do, then you'll be doing some wild stuff. The Bible is not a list of things that God is just telling us we have to do. The Bible is a story. Now, we know from other parts of the story that what they're doing is wrong. But you see, oftentimes when you read the Old Testament, the writer is teaching you through the story. He doesn't come out and say, hey, here's how you should act. Here's what you should do. Hey, by the way, don't do this. The writer is teaching you through the story what happens when you and I mistreat people who are made in God's image and in God's likeness. And the thing about this story is that nobody really comes out looking good, right? So so first of all, Sarai has this idea that, hey, this will be great. And then afterwards, she's like, the Lord's going to judge you, Abram, right? Okay, so what's going on with that? Then you have Abram who's like, yeah, this sounds like a great plan. And then tells his wife, yeah, you could go mistreat your slave. Now, even Hagar, who's pretty much innocent here, even, even she's a little bit Like, when she gets pregnant, she starts looking down on Sarai. She starts kind of feeling like she's above her now. So nobody kind of comes off good in this story. And I want you to understand something here. In the Bible, there's only one hero, and it's the covenant God. It's God is the one who's the real savior, the real hero of the story. And this is good news for people like you and me, because if the Bible was just a list of rules, and it was like, here's Abraham, and he's perfect. Be like Abraham. We'd be in big trouble. But when I read the Bible and I see this messed up family, I can kind of relate a little bit. Sorry to those of you who are related to me. A lot of them are up here and back there and over there and over there. I can relate to my own life and I can relate to my own story. So so what happens is God makes these great promises. Now, the thing here to, to make Abraham a little more relatable here for a minute He was 75 when God called him. He was 75 when God said, I'm going to give you descendants that outnumber the stars, that outnumber the sand. Abraham's like, awesome. How do I know that's going to happen? Last week we talked about this great covenant God made. By this point in the story, 10 years have gone by. Now, I'm not a doctor. Kelly's a doctor. She's really great. She'll probably tell you all the anatomy. Here's what I know as a non-doctor, if I'm 75 and the Lord is like, I'm going to give you enough kids that will be a nation. And then nothing happens and now I'm 85, I'd start to feel like, I think God needs a little bit of help fulfilling his promise. We can assume that this is not for Abraham and Sarah's lack of trying, right? Presumably they know how this thing works. They know how babies work, right? And yet there comes a point where they're like, don't have any kids, God, what happened to your promise? Second promise, God says, I'm going to give you land. Abram and Sarai, they're they're desert wanderers. They're nomads. They don't have any land. And you see, this is oftentimes how the promise of God works. God will make a promise to you. And he's like, I'm going to do these things. And the thing is, it feels like it's going to happen tomorrow. And then 10 years go by and nothing happens. And all of a sudden it's like, well, maybe God didn't actually mean what he said. Or maybe I heard from God wrong. Anybody do that one, right? Or like Abraham and Sarah, we decide that we need to help God out a little bit. And I want to remind somebody today that yes, sometimes when you get a promise from God, you got to get involved. Sometimes you have to do your part, but sometimes it's actually about waiting on God to do what you cannot do for yourself. And so you see, we have, we have the promise from God in our past, and we have this, this great destiny in our future, and in the middle, guess what you have? Faith. And I know that's not fun. Faith sounds like this really cool thing until you're 85 years old wondering where the promise of God is for your family. It sounds like this, this beautiful thing until you're watching years go by and you get older and your spouse gets older and you're wondering where is the promise of God? All I have is a word from God. Guess what, my friend? If all you have is a word from God, you've got more than enough. You see, you have, you have a promise in your past. You have this great destiny in your future. And like Abraham, the Christian life is this walk of faith, of believing the promise of God, even when it looks like there's nothing happening, when it looks to all the world like there's no way this is going to work. Is the promise of God enough for you? The Bible says that, that faith comes by hearing, Right? Personally, I would have prefer that it said, "Faith comes by seeing." If God could just show me the plan, that'd be nice. Come on, I'm getting a Santo right here. Somebody say Santo. I'm having issues with this, so I'm gonna I'm gonna switch here. We whoa, hello, come on. That was the anointing. I'm just kidding. We we expect the promise of God to happen tomorrow and when it doesn't we question the whole thing. Now I I am to be honest with you an impatient person by nature as evidenced by my copious amount of speeding tickets, okay? It's a true thing. Listen, we got to be vulnerable in church. Waiting is not my favorite thing in the world. In fact, it's probably the worst thing on the planet. And like we sang today, even when I don't see it, you're working. You know what you know what God's working on in the 10 years? He's working on you, Abraham. See, the the baby part is not a problem. when you're God, The impossible is like nothing. He can heal a headache or raise somebody from the dead all the same. It's not like he has to try harder. What he's working on in the waiting is you, Abraham, so that when you get to the place that he called you, you're the person that you need to be. Because if if not, you'll get there and you won't be the kind of person that can sustain the promise that God is trying to give you. You know what God cares about? more than your destiny he cares about your heart and you see we're we're big on like well god called me to to do this and and i'm gonna have a business and i have this dream and i'm gonna have this ministry and i'm gonna have this platform and god's like forget all of that stuff if i don't have your heart if i don't have you abraham because i called you and i chose you and i love you wants you. And sometimes we, we we, get in the way of the promise of God, because we're trying to do it in our own strength, our own effort. And again, sometimes when God tells you to do something, work hard, go do it, make it happen. But if God's telling you to wait, don't you dare try to do anything. You see, if anything, in the American church, our problem is, It's not that we don't know what we're doing. It's that we think we know what we're doing. It's not that we're too weak. It's that we're too strong. We're too independent. We're too self-sufficient. And so we try to make the promise work through our own strength, through our own effort. And Hagar gets wounded here. I want to carry on the story in verse 7. Says, So Hagar, she she runs away. Verse 7, the angel of Yahweh, this is the first appearance of the angel of the Lord in the Bible. The angel of Yahweh found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, "I'm I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of Yahweh said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. You can tell she's silent here because then in verse 10 it says, Then the angel of Yahweh said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. And the angel of Yahweh said to her, You have conceived and will have a son, and you will name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey, his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will settle near all his relatives. So she named Yahweh who spoke to her, you are El Roy, which means God sees, or God who sees. For she said, In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me. Now there's a there's a whole lot here, more than more than we can talk about in a few minutes. But but here's, here's really what I want to talk to you about. And, and I almost didn't preach this sermon because I wanted to, wanted to keep going with the Abraham story. I wanted to keep going with, with, with the promise of God. And you see, the crazy thing about this story is that in the midst of our supposed heroes who are supposed to be doing things right and are actually messing everything up, what God does is he goes and he appears to a woman who has been rejected, a woman who has been mistreated, a woman who is on the run, a woman who feels like nobody understands her. She doesn't have any rights. She doesn't have any help. She's got no one to have her back. And so she's out. She's alone. She's in the wilderness. And God appears to her. And like like often happens when you read through the Old Testament, it talks about the angel of the Lord, this messenger from the Lord. And yet at some point it feels like it's an angel, but it's also God, right? Because then later on, it says she she called Yahweh, who spoke to her, right? So, so it's it's the angel of the Lord, but it's also God Himself that's that's meeting with Hagar. And the power of a story like this is that he's not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob; he's the God of Hagar. And you see, what what feels to us, what honestly felt to me like an interruption in the story, is actually revealing to us the kind of God that Yahweh is. That this is a God who goes for the outcast. This is a God who sees those that nobody else sees. This is a God who even goes to those who have been wounded by the people of God. Like Hagar, sometimes maybe you, you find yourself on the run. You find yourself rejected. You find yourself mistreated. You find yourself misunderstood and wounded. And maybe it was the people of God who were doing that to you. And then what we see in this story is that he is the God of Hagar and the God of Ishmael. And he meets them out in the wilderness. Now, if you've got a keen eye for the Bible or you, you've you heard some of the stories about the Bible, let me tell you about the wilderness here. You know, the wilderness is the place where it seems like there's nothing. The wilderness, in a very, I don't even mean like a, a metaphorical sense. I mean, literally, the wilderness is a place where it's hard to survive, All your comforts are taken away. All your security is taken away. You're out there with nothing, with no one. You're out in the middle of the desert. And the thing about the wilderness, when you read through the Bible, is that what looks like the place where you'd be the worst off, the place where you'd have nothing and no one, is actually the place where God shows up all of the time. Moses, out in the wilderness watching the sheep. Sees the burning bush. The prophet Samuel comes to anoint the next king of Israel. All the brothers in the house line up. They're not the king. They're not the king. Do you have any more sons? Oh, yeah, one, but he's out in the wilderness. Jesus, before he ever began his ministry, spent 40 days in the wilderness. And actually, the gospels tell us that he would frequently retreat to the wilderness to Pray and seek the Lord. Here's what I want to tell you today. If you feel like you're in a wilderness, you're actually in really good company. And I don't mean company with Moses or David, I mean company with the living God. You see this is the God of the wilderness and you see what happens in the wilderness is we come to the end of ourselves. We come to the end of our own strength, our own ideas, our own power and in that place of weakness God unveils his strength. You see what we what we learn from this story is that for Abraham and Sarah who are trying to make it work in their own power, God is nowhere to be seen. But for Hagar, who has nothing left, God is surprisingly present. And you see, this is, a, this is a picture of the God that we serve. And I can tell you from my own life, some of my best moments with the Lord We're not where I I felt like Abraham and Sarah and I could make it work and I could figure it out and I could make things happen. It's when I felt like I had no one. It's when I felt like nobody understood. Nobody was able to get me. Nobody could help me solve what was happening in my life. It was actually in that place where I felt like I was at rock bottom that I've had the most beautiful encounters with God. Hagar says this about God. I want to reread 613. So she named Yahweh who spoke to her. You are El Roy, God who sees. Genesis is full of these, the whole Bible is, but especially Genesis, these names of God. And, and El, which means God, and then Roy is seer, or the one who sees. This is one of the, the the lesser known names of God, but there's there's something beautiful and profound about it. That that all throughout the Scripture we see that that God doesn't see as man sees, God doesn't look at us the way other people look at us. That that God looks at the heart. That God sees the people that nobody else sees. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that your Father who who sees in secret. That your Father sees the hidden desires of the heart. He sees the hidden cry that you and I are, are longing for, the, the ways that we're looking for God to move, the ways that we're looking for someone to show up, and it feels like nobody gets us. And there may be people here who you feel like, nobody gets me. Nobody understands what's happening in my life. Maybe maybe my friends don't, or my coworkers don't. Maybe my spouse doesn't even really understand what's happening, and I, I need something. I need God to show up, and I want to tell you today, our God... Yahweh, is El Roy, and he's the God who sees. I'm telling you, it's in those moments where you feel like you're on top of the world and things are going great. Those aren't the places where we have our best moments with God. You know where we encounter God the most? In the wilderness. Let me read this to you from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is like Kelly. He's pretty much always right. C.S. Lewis said this God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, it's it's when you and I come to the end of ourselves. It's when you and I run out of steam, when there's no more gas in the tank, when it feels like there's nothing left to give, when we don't know where to go or what to do, we come into an encounter with the God of Hagar, with El Roy, the God who sees. And some of you, some of you, I want you to hear me today. This sermon is right for you. Some of you feel like there's there's just no one who gets me and I want to tell you God sees you today. God gets you today. God knows what's happening today that that when it feels like no one understands and and God, he probably doesn't get it. He can't relate. He's a he's a million miles away. I want to tell you. That's not his character. This isn't just something God does. This is his name. This is his identity. He's he's the seeing God. That unlike our idols that we pursue all the time. The Bible tells us our idols, they have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Maybe you'd say, Joey, I don't have any idols in my house. An idol is anything that you and I exalt above the one true God. It could be a job, it could be a certain amount of money in your bank account, it could be a relationship, it could be some sort of status or or platform online. An idol could be anything. And those things that you and I are slaving so hard for, they don't see us. They don't hear us. They don't feel anything for us. But the God of Hagar sees. And here's what I love about this story. Not only does God see Hagar, but Hagar sees God. Genesis 6.13, let me reread this to you. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me. Now this is obscure in the Hebrew. All the translations translate it differently. Here's the new American standard. She says, have I even seen him here and lived after he saw me? But all the translations kind of translate it differently, but it's getting to this sense of like, Hagar's shocked that, she, that she's seen God and lived. You see, there's this, this understanding that the Jewish people had that, that nobody could see God and live. For those of you who know the Moses story, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to meet with God, and Moses is hidden in a cleft of a rock, right, because, because he can't see God face to face, that even Moses can't see God. And when you read the great, the great prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, there's a sense that when they see God, they're not physically seeing him. It's just It's just a vision, and the New Testament confirms this idea. It says that no one has ever seen God except Jesus, his son. And so so what we see in the Old Testament is that there's just this small handful of people who saw God, but even then it was in veiled form because no one can see God and live. But there's this small handful of people who saw God veiled, his glory hidden so that it wasn't too much for them. And here's what I love about this story. There's probably, I could count on one hand, maybe two, people who saw God in the Old Testament. And guess who one of those people is? It's Hagar. It's an Egyptian slave that was mistreated. And there's, there's no other point where it's like, She's this great hero in the story, and we learn about more of it in Exodus and Leviticus and through the Old Testament. It's just like this brief interruption in the story of God, and it is this holy thing where Hagar has an encounter with the God who sees. And I want to tell somebody today, not only does God see you, you're about to see God. You're about to have an encounter with the living God, and he will change everything in your life. In fact, it's not once. A few chapters later, when Isaac's born, stuff happens again, and she's on the run again. And guess what? She encounters God again. He's the God of Hagar. He sees you today. That's, that's the whole point of this story. The first and the second part. That as long as we insist, like Abraham, like Sarah, on manufacturing the promise, God's not in it. But like Hagar, when we when we get to the end of ourselves, the Bible says you're actually right there to seeing God.